If you do have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 1, and this morning we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this incredible epistle, the letter written to the church of Rome. And uh, we're going to be looking at just a few verses this morning, verses 8 through 12. So Romans 1, this morning we're looking at verses 8 through 12, and the title for the sermon this morning is Spiritual Service to God. Spiritual service to God. You'll have some notes there in your outline. We'll be uh, using those if those are helpful for you as we work through our time together in this text. And here's Paul, again, writing to the Church of Rome, picking up in verse 8, where he writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may not at last, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of fellowshipping together as a church. Thank you for the the privilege of hearing the, the scriptures read, to be able to sing together, and to profess that you are mine forevermore. We're so thankful that we one day will be able to walk with you because of your sacrifice through your son, Jesus Christ, to call us out of darkness into light, God. So help us today as we look at this passage to learn what you want us to learn and to live our lives faithfully as a, as, a, uh, as a worship and as a testimony to your great name. And it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen. Well, God is a sovereign and a supreme ruler. He is also a gentle and a loving father. So, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So God is calling every Christian to love him and to serve him and to obey him, to submit to him, and to totally surrender to his word and to his authority. And the focus of this morning's message is on our spiritual service to God. And spiritual service to God is worship. And when Paul says here in verse 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit, the word serve here in verse 9 could also be translated as worship. And so this teaches us that service is worship. Which is why Paul uses that same word a little bit later in Romans 12, verse 1, when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we actually find our joy and our value and our worth and our delight not in ourselves, but in God. And we need to see our service to God, not so much as an outward duty, as it would be an inward delight. And if we're not willing to serve and worship God with all that we are, then our lives will be filled with heartache and pain and discontentment and misery. 
In fact, if we use our eyes and we use our hands to serve our own desires and to worship our own selves instead of to serve and worship God, then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And at the end of the ages, God will completely crush and subdue every rebellion against his authority. 1 Corinthians 5, 24 and 25 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. But as a loving and as a gracious father, God does not want any of his children to love and obey him and worship him or serve him reluctantly or unwillingly or even begrudgingly. The scripture prohibits and warns against serving God hesitantly or grudgingly or without joy and gladness of heart. In fact, under the old covenant, serving God grudgingly or half-heartedly would attract a curse from God. Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48 says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, And because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck unless he has destroyed you or until he has destroyed you. So in other words, God's saying in that passage, if you don't serve the Lord with joyness, joyfulness and gladness of heart, he will set a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. That's what he says to his people, Israel. Jeremiah 48, 10, cursed is he who does not do the work of the Lord or who does uh, the work of the Lord with slackness. That's the ESV translation. It would be with a a lack of motivation that that you're half-heartedly doing the work of the Lord. Now again, I I would just say it doesn't mean that if you don't make your bed joyfully in the morning or eat your vegetables with gratitude that you're under a curse. I don't know, maybe you would be, right? But, but I'm saying that you struggle with sin, and I struggle with sin, but we're growing in Christ's likeness, and yet somehow if we categorically view our whole walk with God as this duty and outward motivation, and we lack the joy and the gladness, then there'll be consequences for our sin. And so when God commanded Moses to, to build him a sanctuary in the wilderness, so that he may dwell among the children of Israel, God specifically instructed Moses, saying in Exodus 25, verse two, speak to the people of Israel that they would take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And unfortunately, many servants of God today only care about what people give or bring as an offering, but not about how they give or present it to God. But in Exodus 25, there's an emphasis on bringing the offering with the willing and even a motivated heart. This is what 2 Corinthians 9, 7 is all about, that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. All right, so the point I'm trying to make is simply that when we as Christians know that we've been saved by grace alone through Christ, it is expected of us 
that we would gladly seek to love and obey and worship and serve the Lord and to become zealous for good works. And this is precisely what we see Paul mentioning here as he offers his spiritual service to God. We're going to be looking at that in verses 8 through 12 again. Paul's offering the spiritual service to God. Let me just reflect real quick on what we've done so far in the book of Romans. For the last several weeks, verses 1 through 7, the prologue of this book of Romans, and it, and it continues really from 1 through 7 all the way down to verse 17. In fact, you should think of verses 1 through 17 as sort of a, a front porch to the house. And this front porch will help orient us to what we'll be focusing on for the rest of the book. And so in one sense, to understand this opening prologue will be to understand the rest of the book, which will continue to open up these truths to us to even greater detail. These, these verses, 1 through 7, are really what, what Rome, uh, the book of Romans is all about. And we see that at the end of verse 1, it's all about the gospel of God. This is this is Paul's magnum opus. If you want to understand what the gospel is, this is the fullest theological treatment in the entire Bible as to the truths of the gospel. And Paul throws his cards down right here at the outset of this book to let us know that this is all about the gospel of God. And when he says that this is all about the gospel of God, he is not saying that it is the gospel about God, though it certainly is, but rather he's stressing, and in this case, this is the gospel that has come from God. It has come down from heaven. This is God's gospel. This is God's answer for our sin. This is God's solution for our separation from God because of our depravity. And Paul unfolds for us what this gospel is in these opening verses, and it was promised beforehand in the Old Testament through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. It is not a new message. It's about God's Son, verses 3 and 4. And again in verse 5, this gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith right there in the middle of verse 5. It's for the whole world. It says that it's to be among the Gentiles. It's for the sake of God's name. The end of verse 5, it's all about his glory. And it's all about the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. It's not even really about us being saved. It's ultimately about the glory of his great name. It's almost as if it's an aside that you and I be saved. And it's all in order that Christ would be exalted and that he would be honored and cherished by those whom he has called out of darkness into light. And God guarantees here that this worshiping body will be around the throne of heaven. And in verse 6, we see the sovereign effectual summons and subpoena of God himself to all his elect to draw them from the four corners of the earth. We understand that God calls them out of darkness and into light, and so God himself guarantees this gospel will be believed and it will be received. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, it's because that God has called you out of darkness. And it's because God has called you out of this world's evil system. He's called you out of a lifestyle of self-righteousness and self-centeredness and self-worship. And he's called you into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is God's work in your life. 
This is God's doing in your life. He's the one who came after you. He's the one who pursued you. He's the one who drew you. He's the one who regenerated you. He's the one who converted you. He's the one who granted you repentance and faith. He's the one that gave you saving faith. And he's the one who made you new, and it's all by grace. It has nothing to do with your own will or your own effort or your own merit. And when you get to heaven, you will receive the crown of life. And it will sit on your head for like a half a millisecond. And then you'll take it off and cast it at the feet of him. For from him and to him and through him are all things. And so this is what we've been looking at. And just these first seven verses, it's like a stick of dynamite waiting to explode. Verses one through seven are like a systematic theology dipped in kerosene and lit on fire. And then we're going to get to verses 16 and 17, which I would say it's like an atomic bomb going off with the full mushroom clout. And so here we are between verses one through seven, that systematic theology dipped in kerosene and the atomic bomb of verses 16 and 17, and we're in verses eight through 15. This is something like a bridge between these two towering passages, one through seven, 16 through 17, but sometimes it's just good to walk on a bridge, isn't it? We're between two towering truths, and this week and next time when we're together, we're going to be looking at this bridge of verses 8 through 15, today just 8 through 12, and this morning I want to show you in 8 through 12 three marks of true spiritual service that Paul displays in these verses. These are three aspects of spiritual service and worship that we can learn about and then even seek to apply in our own lives, and so this morning we'll see number one, Paul gave thanks for the church in Rome, verse eight. Then we'll secondly see Paul prayed for the church in Rome, verses nine and 10. And then in the last two verses we'll cover this morning, 11 and 12, Paul wanted to impart some spiritual gift to the church of Rome. Not too bad for a bridge this morning. We're gonna look at thanksgiving and prayer and mutual encouragement with one another as believers. And so let's start with number one this morning. Paul gave thanks to the church in Rome. Verse eight, your first blank if you are taking notes this morning, just says his thanks was directed to God. His thanks was directed to God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. It's interesting that Paul uses the word first, the beginning of verse eight, but never lays out a clear second after that. So, some people would say that Paul would often move from one point to another point, and, and sometimes he would use parentheses, and then he may or may not come back to that first point that he made to elaborate further on something he previously said. In this case, I think that it's more about Paul simply saying this is of first importance. I just want to thank God, he says. And Paul isn't thanking the Romans, and he's not thanking the other apostles, and he's not thanking Barnabas, who spent time with him on that first missionary journey. He's not thanking Timothy or, or Titus. He's thanking God. And we see Paul doing that regularly throughout his epistles, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you. Philippians 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Same thing in Colossians 1, verse 3, we always thank God. And so we're just reminded here at the beginning of Romans and verse 8 that we are ultimately to direct our thanks to God. 
Thanksgiving and praise are always at the center of Paul's religious experience. And that's why not, uh, 10 out of the 13 epistles open, I read three of them to you, but 10 out of the 13 of Paul's epistles open with some form of I give thanks to my God and, God, and Paul's quick to acknowledge that. And you know, just, just for a quick thought, we sometimes like to thank people and I should say that I think it's appropriate to give credit to where credit is due. Uh, but we also just want to understand that ultimately we should be thanking God. Even when I clap for somebody at church, sometimes we'll have a special music or we'll honor somebody in a special way. And I think that's all good and right and appropriate for the service they did or our encouragement to them. But, but I, I, I like to think ultimately that I'm, I'm thanking God for them. I'm thanking God for what he's done in and through them. I mean, I enjoy uh, being able to hear sometimes somebody say, hey, Adam, thank you for the message. That was such encouragement. But it encourages me even more when someone says, I thank God for you. I thank God for how he's using you, that through you, God's word is becoming alive to me. We need to be thinking about directing our thanks to God. Again, I'm not saying after this sermon, never say thank you to somebody. I'm just saying, keep in mind that thanks ultimately is to God. He is the giver of life. He is the giver of wisdom. He is the giver of all grace. He is the giver of this gospel message, which radically has changed your life. So we see Paul saying that. I want to thank God for you. He directs his thanks to God. Next, we see in your next blank, he addresses God uh, as a, in a personal way. His address to God was personal. Please note, he says, I thank my God. Notice Paul here is thanking his own God. There is a personal emphasis here. He, he's not standoffish in this sense. He's not just thanking some theological God, some far and away God, but a God whom he can call his own. And there's some healthy emphasis here on this healthy relationship that we can have as Christians with our God. I mean, no pagan would have made such a personal statement about a personal deity. No Jew, even from the Old Testament, would have referred to God with a personal pronoun. For Paul, God was not just a theological abstraction, but a beloved father and a close friend. And I love how David refers to God in the same way, really, in Psalm 63 that we read, uh, I think, last week or the week before here at our worship, but it's, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David again says, oh God, you are my God. And Paul is saying, I want to thank my God. And we, we want to always make sure that we respect and revere God for who he is. He's holy and majestic and supreme, and he's nothing like us. But it also magnifies God when we address him with intimacy and closeness and some degree of warm familiarity that he's my God. That's how Paul directs his thanks to God. He makes it personal, number three, or C in your outline, his gratitude was expressed through Jesus Christ. In the middle of verse eight, he wants to thank God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul thanks God through the Lord Jesus, who alone is our eternal mediator between God and man. Jesus said in John 14, six, that uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And it's because 
we have been given access to the Father through the Son that we can always, as Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to, our, to help us in our time of need. It, it's through Christ that we can cry out to God, as Romans 8.15 says, as our Abba Father. And so we never approach God through our own merit or through our own credentials or based on our own worth or our own value, we approach God through the infinite worth of his son who gave his life as the perfect sacrifice, as a spotless lamb, as a satisfactory substitute so that we can come into the presence of a holy God through Christ alone. And Paul's mentioning that there. He's coming to God through Christ. And then we also read there in verse eight, your next blank, his thanksgiving was for all of them. It was for all of them. I want to thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. In this verse, the, the word all is in the plural, and the word you is in the second person plural. This is Paul doubling down on this thanksgiving to God through Christ. It was for all of you. Or you could say, it's for y'all. That's how we do it in the South, right? Sometimes if we want to give double emphasis, we'll say, this is for all y'all. So it's in the Bible, just want to make sure you see it. It's there. Paul is known for, you know, coining certain words, but I wonder if he had a good Southern accent. This is for y'all. I'm praying for y'all. That's what he's saying here. I'm praying for you all. The emphasis here would be that he's talking to the believers in Rome. He's talking to every Roman Jew. He's talking to every Roman Gentile who's in Christ. This was for every Roman believer, regardless of their ethnicity. And we certainly Learn more about that in Ephesians chapter 2, in that familiar passage where he writes verses 13 through 15, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Talking about the Gentiles. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he's writing to the Ephesian believers, those of you who are far off, Gentiles, and those of you who had the covenants of the promise, you now have that dividing wall that was pictured even in the temple of where the outer court was for the Gentile, the inner court was for the Jews. And so by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, Ephesians 2.15, one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And so Paul was thanking God Again, for every believing Jew and every believing Gentile that's now been brought into the church through the blood of Christ, Jesus alone is our peace. Jesus alone has made both groups one, and Jesus alone broke down that dividing wall of hostility. Jesus alone abolished the old covenant by fulfilling the law perfectly, and Jesus created one new man in the place of two, and this new man is every man or woman who is in Christ, that we're the church, that we're now one entity. There's one people of God, and it's those who are in Christ. And so Paul is, is expressing this thought there when he says, I pray for all of you. And in the last part of verse 8, his thanks was because of their faith. You know, last blank there under number one. His, his thanks was because of their faith. I'm thanking God for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The specific reason for Paul's thankfulness for the Roman believers in this verse was for their faith. 
And this was somewhat understandable that their faith was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And this certainly makes sense, especially in view of the fact that Rome was the capital of the known developed world at that time, the metropolis of the empire, and many had contact with Rome either directly or indirectly through friends or relatives or some type of business endeavor. And the fact that it is in the very heart of pagan Rome, this church that he's writing to, that there are those who worship the true God was indeed a topic worthy of conversation and adequate uh, for giving thanks joyfully. He's thankful that, that people around the whole world had known about this church. And by using the word faith here, he talks about their faith. Paul could be talking about that initial belief and trust in Christ. But this also would likely be a reference to their persevering trust that brought spiritual strength and growth. Faith like that would also no doubt bring persecution. Believers in Rome lived at times, those who were being persecuted in the lion's den and at times faced the gladiators in the arena and later would be burned uh, in order to light up uh, Nero's gardens. And yet they lived out their faith with integrity and with credibility and with courage. And some churches are famous because of their celebrity pastor. And some churches are famous because of their unique architecture. And some churches are famous for their size and for their wealth. Well, the church in Rome was famous because of their faith. They had a faith that was real. They had a faith that held closely to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a fellowship of genuinely redeemed saints whose testimony for the gospel and their courage in the midst of persecution served as a shining example for the whole world to see. And Paul commends this as he commends their faith as well as he, he does the same thing at the end of the book. In Romans 16, 19, he says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. And so we're seeing here one of the acts of spiritual service that Paul renders for us in this passage is a thankful heart. And a thankful heart is essential for true spiritual service to be at play. Superficial believers are seldom satisfied and therefore seldom thankful. Thankfulness is the mark of a mature believer who understands it's all of God. And because we can sometimes be tempted to focus on our own desires, as, as those of us who struggle with the superficiality sometimes of our faith, we're more focused on our own desires or our own pleasures or our own comforts that we find in the world. And we often experience resentment and ingratitude. And it's a thankful heart which would be the heart which would continually be focused on God and what he's doing in our life that shows a depth of faith. And as we grow in that depth of faith, hopefully we will become more thankful for things that really matter in our lives, for the lives of other faithful believers and for the advancement of Christ's kingdom throughout the world. And so remember, we're looking again, at three aspects of spiritual service to God. And now that we've seen how Paul gave thanks to God for the church in Rome there in verse eight, let's look at our second point, verses nine and 10. Paul prayed for the church in Rome. And your next blank says, God was Paul's witness. So he's praying for the church of Rome and he's, he's, he's reaching out to God as a witness of this fact. In verse nine, for God is my witness 
whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. So at this point, Paul is quick to link his gratitude from verse 8 for the Roman believers together with the concept of prayer. It kind of goes naturally. I'm thanking God for you, and I've I've been praying for you. And here in verse 9, Paul is earnestly wanting to communicate to the church at Rome that he has been praying for them. He is calling God as his witness to this fact, the beginning of verse 9. It's somewhat of an oath, a very solemn affirmation of the trustworthiness of a statement which could, could only be known to God. Remember, on this occasion, it seems relevant since Paul had actually never been to Rome, and even though for many years he had been functioning as an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul actually wrote this book to the Roman believers from Corinth, and even after he finished his time at Corinth, he was about to head off in the opposite direction to Jerusalem, but he earnestly wanted the Roman believers to know that he was thinking of them, and he had been praying for them, and thanking God for them, and that kind of heartfelt expression was, again, a common expression Paul would use, as we see it in Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We see this expression again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. And so while God was Paul's witness, we see also in the middle of verse 9 that the gospel, your next blank, the gospel was Paul's message. So he's testifying that God knows about his prayers and the gospel is really what stirs him, whom I serve. So God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. So Paul is saying that he's serving God with his spirit in the gospel of his son. Several things going on here in the middle of verse 9. First of all, when Paul says, I serve God with my spirit, he is saying that he has an unreserved and total commitment to the Lord with every fiber of his being. And as I was pointing out in our introduction, service and worship go hand in hand. And so the word that we see there in the middle of verse 9, that I serve, whom I serve with my spirit, the word serve given here is always used in the New Testament to refer to religious service and therefore sometimes would even be translated appropriately as not service but as worship because these two concepts overlap, service and worship. And the greatest worship a believer can offer to God is devoted, pure, and heartfelt service. In fact, the Scottish reformer, John Knox, actually translated this part of verse 9, to whom I direct the inner worship of my heart. He didn't translate it as service, I serve the Lord, but as I worship the Lord from my heart. And in light of all the spiritual riches that believers enjoy as the fruit of God's mercies, it logically flows that we would want to offer God our highest form of service, and that would be to worship him with all that we are. And in the Old Testament, this included the idea of priestly spiritual service, which was rendered unto God, and Jesus even shows us this connection between service and worship. You remember when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan 
It was Satan who said to Jesus, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Remember, he offered him all the kingdoms of this world as that third temptation. You remember Jesus' reply to him in Luke chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So Jesus is using those two words. In fact, the word serve at the end of Jesus' answer to Satan is the same word serve that we see here by Paul in Romans 1 verse 9. You, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall worship would be an appropriate way to see what Jesus is saying there. It's the same word. Jesus said that it has been commanded that you worship only the Lord and you serve only the Lord. And the, the emphasis is on the fact that worship is shown and expressed through your service. So it's not like we just come and we worship and then we go home and do whatever we want and live a lazy life in our Christian faith. Now we, we actively engage service as an act of our worship. And what or whom we serve is what or whom we worship. Whatever it is you're serving, that is what you worship. And whatever you worship, that is what you're going to serve. And I hope and pray that we would not be serving or worshiping our own desires or our own dreams or plans or goals or aspirations. Instead, may we worship the king, which means that we serve the king. And we want to serve him with all of our hearts. Again, in Romans 12, 1, where we read how Paul says that he wanted to present challenge us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some translations say your spiritual service of worship because they're so interconnected. Such spiritual devotion is accomplished by refusing to be conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Romans 12, 2 says. We also read, Paul's statement to the church in Philippi in Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Again, Paul, we're just seeing, is a, a servant and Paul is a worshiper. And those two things overlap. His service was an act of his worship and you could equally say his worship is an act of his service. And Paul's primary service to God was the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and pointing others to God's son. And Paul gave of himself tirelessly to preach the gospel to all who would listen. And Paul did this whether he was a free man or whether he was in chains or whether he was preaching to the Jews or primarily preaching to the Gentiles. He, he did this when he had plenty Romans or uh, Philippians 4 says, when he had plenty or when he was in want. And so this service to God of preaching the gospel included deep personal concern for everyone. And that's why we lead to now the end of verse 9 and all of verse 10. Your next blank, prayer was Paul's focus. Prayer was Paul's focus. So God was his witness, the gospel was his message, but prayer is the real focus here of verses 9 and 10 as he then moves on to say that without ceasing, so God's my witness, I serve him in the gospel of his son, but, but it's without ceasing that I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul wanted the believers in Rome to know that he had not yet met them, but he had prayed for them regularly. And it even says that he prays for them without ceasing 
and that they were always in his prayers. Another double emphasis. He's praying without ceasing, and at the same time, they're always in his prayers. Paul not only prayed for their spiritual well-being of the Roman church, but he was eager to be used by God to come to them and to interact with them in person. You know, some like to support other believers by giving money. And some like to support other believers by writing them cards, and both are welcomed in wonderful ways to support other people. But Paul, he was really emphasizing, I want to come and spend time with you. He showed his love and his care for them, even in his prayers for them, that he was longing to come and be, be with them, right? I mean, Paul wasn't, he wasn't so much interested in staying in some ivory tower and writing books and being a world-leading theologian as he was in being with the people, I mean, to be fair, Paul did both. He did write books, and he was a world-leading theologian, but he also liked to be with people. He was relational, and he was personable, and he was considerate of others. And I think we could draw from that that the more spiritual you are, the more relatable you are with others for the sake of his name. Right? The more spiritual you are, the more relatable you are because you want to be with other people. And spirituality does not lead to isolation. Spirituality does not lead to separation or to the exaltation of yourself and your view over and above all other people. That's just not accurate, right? The truly spiritual person is a humble person. And the more spiritual you are, the more you want to pray for others and encourage others. And you can't do that effectively if you're not spending time with them. And so although Paul rejoiced and gave thanks for the believer's faithfulness in Rome, he knew that apart from God's continual encouragement and empowerment, even the strong have days of struggle. So the saints in Rome were always in Paul's prayers and, and never uh, they, they never were taken off of his prayer list. And Paul was, was like this, not only with the Roman believers, but through Paul's prayers for other believers, we see that same heart time and time again. Paul prays in a similar way for the Thessalonian believers in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he encouraged them to have devotion to unceasing prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which says, pray without ceasing. Paul also was counseling the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 6.18 to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And later, here in Romans, Paul even asked the church in Rome to pray for him. Romans 15.30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So it's nothing wrong for asking people to pray for you. That's, a, that's actually a, a, a window into the spiritual maturity of the person to request prayer. I can't do this on my own. I can't, I can't make it through the day. Would you pray for me that God would strengthen me and establish me and allow me to honor him in whatever it is I'm facing on any given day? And so 
While we don't have specific content of Paul's prayers for Rome, he says, I'm always praying for you, we can assume that his prayers for the church of Rome would have been very similar. And if you want to just do a quick study on Paul's prayers, you could certainly look at Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and Colossians 1, 9 through 11, some of the well-known uh, content of Paul's prayers. And the content of all of those prayers was very spiritual. I mean, he prayed for individual believers, but he also prayed for churches as a whole. And he prayed for their hearts, that they would be knit together with God and that their knowledge of his word would be made complete and that their obedience would be made perfect. And the depth and the intensity of prayer comes from the depth and the intensity of the love that you have for God and have for others. We're saying if you love God and love others, you thank God for what he's doing in them, and you spend time praying for them. We've seen that Paul's spiritual service and worship included giving thanks to God for the believers in Rome, and it included praying incessantly for the church of Rome. And then third, we read in verses 11 through 12 that number three here again, Paul wanted to impart some spiritual gift to the church of Rome. Your next blank says Paul longed to see his fellow believers, beginning of verse 11, for I long to see you. This really shows Paul's heart again for wanting to be with them in person. You know, he wasn't like, hey man, I love you guys, hope it's going well, you know, God be with you. He's like, no, I, I long to see you. This verse shows his heart was to be there with them on the ground in Rome. And though, again, he'd never been there yet, he longed to, to see the church there. And Paul didn't want to go to Rome as some sort of tourist to, for its you know, well-known, uh, renowned entertainment. He doesn't mention anything about wanting to go to Rome in order to see the Appian Way or the Forum or the Colosseum or to watch the chariot races. Paul wanted to go to Rome to give of himself not to entertain himself or to indulge in some delicious Italian food. There's nothing wrong with that either, right? But as I'm just saying, the purpose of writing to them, I just want to be with you and pray with you and encourage you. And Paul wanted to see the believers in Rome. And if you'll look down even at verse 13, we'll look at this next time together. But verse 13, we read a little further explanation of this. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented. So why was Paul prevented to come to Rome earlier? Well, the simple answer is it wasn't God's timing. There were other things that God had Paul do first. And one of those things was that he had to go to Jerusalem to bring a special offering to aid the saints in Jerusalem. And he's writing this letter again from Corinth. And then he's going to go to Jerusalem. And lo and behold, he'll be come under arrest, and then he'll actually get to Rome as a prisoner, right? We talked about that in the end of the book of Acts, where Acts 19, 21 tells us, Thou, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So we know Rome was always on his heart. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, but I got to get to Rome. And then we even read at the end of this letter, the letter to the Romans, where Paul writes in Romans 15, 20, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. So we see there's something about Paul finishing his three missionary journeys where he could go to places where there was no representation of the gospel or a church, but this church already existed. So that has something to do with, while well, he had a little bit of time where he had to accomplish some other things before coming to them. He even says in Romans 15, 22, for this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. 
And so Paul knew he would get to Rome eventually, but until then he wanted to write them this letter to let them know why it was taking him so long. And so Paul acknowledges in verse 10 that this was all in accordance with God's will. Notice how he says, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So God, uh, Paul knew, is ultimately in accordance with God's will. God's will is found in God's word. And God's sovereign will for us is revealed to us as it happens in real time. Other than what the scriptures tell us, we can't know the exact timing and outlay of the future. Proverbs 16, 9 reminds us that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so why, why exactly did Paul want to come to Rome? Well, the rest of verse 11 says this, your next blank, Paul sought to share some spiritual encouragement. Again, he's not on vacation. Vacations aren't wrong. He's not a tourist, but he wants to come impart to them that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. The Christian who looks on his service to the Lord with expectations of receiving appreciation and personal satisfaction will always be disappointed. We should never look for others to appreciate us or to pat us on the back or to say, nice job, well done. I mean, those things are a blessing to encourage one another and we should do those things. I'm just saying we shouldn't look at that as being the reason. It's not the affirmation of others. It's what fuels us. What fuels us and drives us is how can I love them? He says, I wanna come be with you, not so I can be encouraged by you primarily, but he says, I wanna come with you initially, he says, to impart some spiritual gift to you. I wanna come serve you. I wanna love God and love people, and I just wanna do that because that's what I'm about. And we know he's about that, as he says in uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So Paul wanted to impart this is primary reason for going to Rome. He wants to impart some spiritual gift to the church in Rome to strengthen them. The question is asked, well, which spiritual gift does he want to impart to the church of Rome? Well, I don't believe that he's referring to the spiritual gifts, which will later be discussed in Romans 12, and we also see listed in 1 Corinthians 12. And the reason I don't think that's what he's talking about is because those gifts are bestowed by God through the Holy Spirit. And they were never imparted by a man. So that's one of the big movements of the charismatic church is you have to lay your hands on someone else to impart spiritual gifts to them. And I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that he's saying when he says, I want to impart some spiritual gift, I think that he's saying that in a general sense, that he wants to give them spiritual encouragement. No doubt Paul was thinking here about maybe his gift of leadership and of teaching others to love Christ more. And whatever the particular blessings Paul had in mind, they were not of the superficial, transient, or even physical kind of gift. It, it, it was certainly, he, he certainly was not interested in tickling their ears even or boasting of himself. He wanted to impart spiritual blessings in order for the Roman believers to be strengthened. 
which means for them to be established. He said he, he, he wants them to be strengthened them, very end of verse 11, or to be established. He wanted the church of Rome to be, as Ephesians 4.15 says, to, to grow up in all aspects um, and, unto the head, even unto Christ. And so that's what he wanted to encourage them with. And then we do see verse 12 now moves us to this other point here, number three, under number three. He says, Paul wanted to be mutually encouraged. So he does express this idea. It's not the initial reason that he gives, but he does say, which also demonstrates his own spiritual maturity and understanding here, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So the spiritual gift he wants to impart to them, in a sense, is the same spiritual gift he wants to receive to them as he encourages them and they encourage them. It's a mutual thing. Paul recognized here his own need for encouragement, and Paul wanted to participate in that mutual encouragement. And so he's going to do the best he can to encourage them, expecting nothing in return. And yet at the same time, he knows he'll receive something from them because he knows they have a deep faith that's known throughout the world, that their love for him will encourage him. And that's just how it is with believers, right? You go on a missions trip somewhere and you want to go serve a missionary and you want to serve their work and their effort and their community and you go, you spend a week overseas somewhere and you try to adjust to all the weird food and weird customs and weird smells and weird feels because you haven't had a decent bath in like a week and then all of a sudden you feel encouraged. You feel blessed. You see their smiling faces. You see the, 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 the missionaries work and their effort and you realize how hard it can be and you somehow feel encouraged. You go to serve them, they serve you. That's how it is here at church, right? You come to serve at Awanas and I guarantee you every single Awana worker would say, every night I go home, I'm so encouraged by the opportunity I had to talk to one of these kids. You serve on youth staff, I guarantee you that you come home saying, you know, I'm so thankful that those kids came and we got to share Christ with them. I mean, I guess sometimes you're not encouraged that they were really bad that night, okay? But maybe you could say, you know what? But we had an opportunity to, to shepherd that, to address that. That's how we grow, right? We got to spend time together and we encourage one another. And I, I come here to preach every Sunday morning. Hopefully I'm encouraging you through the word, but, but you encourage me just as much as I encourage you by, by your hunger for the word, by your passion and singing praises to God, by your eagerness to engage in Christ-centered fellowship. There's a, there's a lot we can learn from Paul's example here. You, you need other believers and other believers need you. And sometimes in the world we live in today, we're so autonomous, aren't we? That people will say something like, well, why, why do I need to be a part of a church? And that question hints that some Christians think all they need is Christ. And that may be true in salvation, for sure, right? All we need is Christ. But that's not true in our sanctification because God commands that we one another, one another. It's a commandment that we're instruments in the Redeemer's hands that he uses to help one another, that we are to be building up each other. We're to be instructing, encouraging, and admonishing one another. We're to be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God together with each other. We're to be taking communion together as we, as we want to encourage uh, one another in any way that we can to remember what Christ has done for us. And, and we want to be unified as the body of Christ with Christ being our spiritual head. And so we have a high calling as Christians and we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm and we are to live together in Christ's body, in his church as brothers and sisters in the Lord who care for and we love and we serve each other. 
It's what God's called us to do. I, I love how Ephesians 1 doubles down on this after giving a lot of healthy doctrine in chapters one through three, you know the pivot is Ephesians four, and then it says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. Think about that for a minute. He's just given a lot of doctrine. He's talked about the beauty of salvation and even the, 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 uh, the fact that we were dead, made alive together with Christ. And he doesn't say that he's so encouraged that that's all we do is just think about that. He says, I want you to now walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so he's saying basically all of that doctrine is to be translated into our delightful interaction with brothers and sisters in a way that we can mutually encourage one another. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit isn't something we just experience between us and the Lord. It's something we experience and we edify one another. The spiritual gifts are given to edify the church. And so that worthy calling is again demonstrated in how we interact with one another. So let me ask you this morning, are, are you demonstrating a healthy spiritual service to God? If so, would you consider your spiritual service to be more duty-bound or more an act of heartfelt worship? Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're serving God uh, out, of, out of requirement. You feel like you have to come, your parents make you come, you know that if you don't come, people will shame you and look down at you because you're not involved in some church Maybe you're here and you're here for the wrong reason. And I just want to remind you this morning that our reason to serve God and to be actively involved in church is not some duty. It is a delight and it is an act of worship. And maybe you're here and you don't have that, that mindset. It may be an opportunity for you to look down in your own heart this morning. To, do you even know Christ? Have you ever truly repented of your sins and, and received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you have, it naturally spills out into gratitude. And it just naturally spills out into prayers for yourself and to others. And it naturally lends itself to wanting to impart your life to others. And they impart your life, uh, their life to you. And so if you've never done that, if you've never truly trusted Christ, then before we close, with our, we'll sing a final song, and then we'll have a few people standing right over here. We'd love to talk to you about how you could make serving Christ an act of, uh, an act of worship in your life, and that might be by coming to Christ. And as we look even at the take-home, the application for this message, number one there in your bullet points, how do you give thanks to God for those that he's placed in your life? What does that look like for you? How, how do you give thanks to God for those place in your life? How do you communicate that to others? How do you communicate this gratitude to others? I know it always encourages me when a missionary or one of you says, hey, we're praying for you. We're praying for God to protect you and for God to empower you. I try to communicate that regularly to our missionaries. We prayed for you this morning in our service and, and we wanna give thanks to God for, for what he's doing in others' lives. Number two, how do you make prayer a priority and an ongoing part of your relationship with others, especially if you can't be with them in person? Again, Paul never been with the Church of Rome, but he's constantly talking about them and praying for them. And I think it ought to be an ongoing part of our relationship, whether you're with somebody or not. You, you can still be praying for them. If you're with them, even more reason to be praying together. You know, we're about to go on the marriage conference and Lisa and I have been uh, experiencing a, a renewed focus on just prayer in our own time together because that's what we need to be doing, right? As families, 
as husband and wife, as churches, as small groups, that we pray for one another and encourage one another with those prayers. And then number three, how can we impart spiritual encouragement to one another? How can we impart spiritual encouragement? Do you have a healthy balance of both encouraging others and being encouraged by them? So we're first looking to impart spiritual blessings to others, but we want to be willing to receive, right? We want to be willing to say, hey, I appreciate that encouragement. That, that can be hard for someone like me, even as a pastor. It feels kind of weird, right? People are like, hey, I'm praying for you. And I'm like, uh, okay, all right, man. You know, it's like, but we need to be able to receive. That's that mutual encouragement. We give out and then we receive because you know what? None of us are strong enough to go through your whole life saying, man, I can do it on my own. I don't need your prayers. Pray for them over there. They need, they need help. No, we need to be humble enough to say mutually appreciate pouring in to one another as we understand that it's a spiritual service to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of this bridge between two towering texts about good theology and about not being ashamed of the gospel. And just thank you for reminding us this morning of the importance of thanksgiving and the importance of prayer and the importance of mutual encouragement. And I pray that as a church, we would grow in all of those areas. We need all of those areas in order to be, um, to be a, a, a burning light for you. If, if we're not regularly, uh, humbly thanking you, and if we're not regularly encouraging one another and understanding that it all works through prayer, then we're missing out on the foundation of what it means to be faithful in all areas of the Christian disciplines. And God, I pray that you would truly make all of those disciplines delight, genuine delight, that we long to spend time in prayer together with one another and to pray for others. And I pray that you would just work these principles in our hearts as we think about it, as we reflect on it, maybe even discuss it with our families or small groups this afternoon and this week, that you would be glorified in our spiritual act of worship as we seek to serve you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.